Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Economist Intelligence Unit has just published its annual Democracy Index, a ranking of how democratic norms are faring all over the world. COVID-19 has surely put pressure on civil liberties, but democracy was sliding even before the pandemic. And the tale of Tseichi Lop, the biggest drug lord you've probably never heard of. We trace the roots of his trade in Asia and how the authorities at last caught up with him. First up, though. Thank you for standing by. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Amazon.com Q4 2020 Financial Results Teleconference. Yesterday, as it does every three months, Amazon held an earnings call. It detailed a record quarter. The firm reported more than $100 billion in sales for the first time. Then came another disclosure. Today, we announced that our founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, will transition to the role of executive chair in the third quarter this year. Jeff Bezos, at one time the richest man in the world, will step away from the helm of the company he founded. Well, mostly. And I I will reiterate that Jeff is not leaving. He is uh, getting a new job. He's going to be executive chair of the board. Super important role. The board is super... His successor will be Andy Jassy, a 20-year Amazon veteran and head of Amazon Web Services, the company's enormous cloud computing arm. Since its founding, Mr. Bezos has insisted Amazon continue to act like a feisty startup, and he reiterated his catchphrase in a letter announcing the transition, saying it remains day one. In fact, it's day 9,700 or so, and the company has a goodly handful of challenges that weren't around on day one. Well, the news that Jeff Bezos is stepping back from day-to-day management of Amazon isn't a complete surprise. Patrick Fowles is The Economist's business affairs editor. Before the pandemic, he'd already taken a backseat role. Then he returned to -to day-to-day management to deal with the huge surge in business that Amazon saw during 2020. He had two successors on the table, one of whom signaled he would leave the company. So it was all set up for a management transition, but the exact timing of that wasn't clear until the news we've just had. And how did Amazon weather the the huge surge in business, the the challenges that the 2020 brought? Well, it's obviously been at the absolute heart of the digital surge we've seen in the economy in two ways. First of all, the e-commerce machine it runs, both selling its own product directly and, and doing logistics for other firms, has seen an enormous boom in business. But also, critically, its cloud hosting business is behind a lot of the digital services we've all been using, you know, from Zoom to streaming services on the TV. So it's been absolutely central, really, to the economy's response to the lockdown and pandemic. Is that to say, then, that that Mr. Bezos is, is going out on a high note? I think he is in several ways. I mean, you can judge that by the financial performance of the company and its valuation, which is close to an all time high. I think you can judge it by also the social contribution the firm's made. I mean, it's a very controversial business. People accuse it being a monopoly of exploiting workers and so on. But I think you can say that over the last year, it's also shown that it's really an essential part of many people's lives. And I'm sure Jeff Bezos will be thinking about that as he 
times his departure. But there are also threats out there for Amazon. Regulators continue to scrutinise it more than ever. Yesterday, the FTC, one of those regulators, reached a settlement with Amazon for $60 million. It had been accused of, believe it or not, shortchanging drivers over tips. And there's continual pushback on labour regulation, the conditions of workers. And there's also actually some nascent signs of competition from big firms like Walmart, which are finally getting their act together on digital. Well, you mentioned that regulatory scrutiny, which has also been directed at the likes of Google and, and Apple. Mr. Bezos is was one of the last founders to still be leading the tech giant he founded. I mean, how significant is it to you that, that he's stepping aside here? That's right. Well, of the big five tech companies in America that have come to dominate its stock market and to some degree corners of its economy, there's now only one founder left in the hot seat, Mark Zuckerberg, and he's in a very hot seat indeed, given Facebook's problems. So it does feel like it marks perhaps a new era when these huge companies have reached a point of dominance And yet some of the big questions that that has created remain unanswered. Will governments break them up? Will new competitors eventually arise? And will they be able to keep the same spirit of dynamism that propelled them to their success going for decades to come? And so who is the person who's going to inherit these challenges? Tell tell me about Andy Jassy. Well, Andy Jassy is the continuity candidate. So he's only four years younger than Bezos and has been at the company since 1997 and has been integral to its success, really. He has a background at Harvard Business School, which is interesting because Bezos himself often expresses contempt for the business establishment. But, um, you know, he's a data-driven guy and essentially his big achievement is AWS, Amazon's cloud service, which he's been instrumental in and is now, you know, somewhere between a third and half of the value of the entire business. And it's really a massive achievement and has given Amazon a second pillar alongside e-commerce. And what about a kind of leadership style? Should we expect it to be very Jeff Bezos-like, very hands-on? Well, it's a tall order, isn't it? Because Bezos has a particular kind of charisma and also has enormous credibility because he's stuck with a strategy through some dark days and produced probably the most admired company in the world in terms of what other business people think. So leadership style, he'll struggle, I think, to replicate Bezos. But there are also some interesting decisions he's got to make. I mean, one of them, for example, is whether the company eventually spins off AWS, this huge cloud business, partly to reduce some of the regulatory heat on it from antitrust busters. And, you know, another is how much further to expand Amazon. It's getting into new areas all the time. Its its advertising business is getting bigger, for example. But where to draw the line, I think, is the other big dilemma. Bezos's mentality was just to continually expand, but at some point it's possible that diseconomies of scale kick in and the company should actually shrink or get smaller. And so Mr. Jassy will ultimately make those kinds of decisions now? Well, that's the other ambiguity about this situation, because Mr. Bezos will stay on as executive chairman. And on the one hand, he's signaled that he will continue to have control over the kind of really big strategic decisions. And he still owns a slug of the company between 10 and 20 percent of its voting rights. So, you know, has influence in that sense as well. 
On the other hand, Mr Bezos will be pursuing his other interests, and they include Blue Origin, his space exploration business, and also the Washington Post. So it's going to be an interesting dance for the new boss, really, because he'll have some freedom to reinvent America's most admired company, and yet the man who was in charge of it for 27 years will still be very close and around to watch what he's doing. Patrick, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. For more on the fates of two other tech giants, listen to Babbage, our sister show on technology and science, which is looking at an intensifying Silicon Valley spat. As Apple prepares to give users more control over their data, Facebook claims the policy change will threaten small businesses and its own business. Babbage from Economist Radio is out tonight. Find it wherever you listen. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In a lot of ways, democracy has been taking a beating lately. In Myanmar, a military coup this week ousted a democratically elected leader. Last night, people across the country banged pots and pans outside their windows in protest. Last month's elections in Uganda were preceded by violence and intimidation and predictably followed by allegations of ballot stuffing. Ugandans are in the dark again tonight. The internet is still blocked. Their only source of information on this election is state media. And it's less than a month since the shocking scenes of rioters storming America's Capitol building. As you can see, the police line has now been replaced by the National Guard who are hammering on their shields, giving the protesters the same message, move back. Each year, the Economist Intelligence Unit, the research arm of the Economist Group, publishes its Democracy Index, a snapshot of the state of global democracy. It considers a range of indicators, such as political participation and civil liberties, classifying countries as full democracies, flawed democracies, hybrid regimes, or authoritarian regimes. The data for 2020 have just been published, and they make for concerning reading. Well, the trend was downwards. The Democracy Index hit an all-time low. Joan Hoey is the director of the Democracy Index. We work on a 0-10 scale, and it fell to 5.37, compared with 5.52 when we began the index in 2006. It's by far the worst global score since the index began. And there was also a big regression compared with 2019, which was already a bad year. And presumably the the pandemic was a significant factor in these declines. Indeed. I think we saw how easily democracy could become dispensable during a global public health emergency, including in the most developed democracies in the world. And what we saw essentially in 2020 was the biggest rollback of individual freedoms ever undertaken by governments during peacetime and perhaps even in wartime too. 
That was really the most striking occurrence of an extraordinary year, I think, the willing surrender of fundamental freedoms by millions of people around the world. A charitable view of this is that it was an extraordinary situation that will pass and the reductions in civil liberties will in turn pass as well. Yeah, I think that faced with a new deadly disease, most people concluded that preventing catastrophic loss of life justified a temporary loss of freedom. There was a remarkably high compliance with the social distancing and lockdown and track and trace and all the other intrusive measures imposed by governments to deal with the pandemic. And that's fine. But regardless of public support for those measures, countries that withdrew civil liberties imposed emergency measures without allowing oversight were penalised in the index. And as one might have expected, I guess, we saw that authoritarian regimes tended to use the pandemic emergency as a cover for imposing greater controls on their citizens and clamping down on opponents and protesters and so on. And so taking the the world by by regions, which regions suffered the worst in, in, in terms of democratic norms? Well, the biggest regressions occurred in the most authoritarian countries in the world. So the regions which contain the most of those are in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Middle East and North Africa. And those two regions registered the biggest decline. Any bright spots? The success stories that there have been, and these were in 2020, was um, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, which joined the ranks of full democracies. And Taiwan's rise in particular was quite spectacular. It rose 20 places to 11th place from 31st place in 2019. To some degree, this reflects a consolidation of positive political and legal developments over recent years. So that's to do with the transparency and financing of political parties, The main thing that happened was the national elections in January 2020, which really demonstrated the resilience of Taiwan's democracy in the face of external threats. There was a very strong voter turnout, especially among the younger generation. So overall, it was a very strong performance. And what about America, where there has certainly been lots of concern about threats to democracy? How did it come out in the 2020 index? So America was downgraded a few years ago in 2016 from a full democracy to a flawed democracy. And that downgrade essentially preceded the election of Donald Trump. But the downgrade was mainly because of a further erosion of public trust in institutions. And that remains a central flaw in America at this moment. The positive factors were continued increase in political participation. Now, that was expressed in different ways. It was expressed in the Black Lives Matter movement. Probably most of all, it was expressed in this huge turnout in this hotly contested presidential election. But in our index, political participation is very important. And we've seen in recent years increasing political engagement and participation in the state. So that actually drove an increase in the score. So given the the general, the global downward slide and the way things look at the start of 2021, how are you feeling about global democracy? Well, I think we're at quite a dark moment for democracy. I think what we've seen is how fragile democracy can be. We need to guard against the danger that some of these 
measures that have been instituted stay with us beyond the pandemic. So I think that's something that anybody who's concerned about democracy and civil liberties and freedom of expression really needs to keep a close eye on this year. Joan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. He's been called the Asian El Chapo, a reference to the Mexican drug lord Joaquin Guzman. And last month, a worldwide hunt to track him down came to an end in Amsterdam. But unlike El Chapo, for decades, one of Asia's biggest crime bosses was mostly unknown. Fechi Lop is a 57-year-old Canadian national who was born in China. John Hooper writes for The Economist on transnational organized crime. He's said to have started his criminal career as a member of the Big Circle Boys, which is a large East Asian organized crime syndicate, the origins of which are traced back to the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the Red Guards. How is it that there's an organized crime syndicate that goes back to the days of the Cultural Revolution? When Mao turned against the excesses of the Red Guards, he sent a lot of them for re-education in Guangdong, uh, the province that has a frontier with Hong Kong, and either in prison, because that's effectively what it was, or afterwards in Hong Kong, they formed this syndicate. And so where does Tsai Lop fit into that? Well, he was too young to have been a member of the Red Guards but he seems to have incorporated himself into the organisation at a later stage and taken at least some of its members to a much higher level. He is said to be the boss of a narcotic super syndicate called The Company, which brings together um, some of the big circle boys with members of several leading triads. The Company is said to be chiefly responsible for flooding the whole Asia-Pacific region with meth and other synthetic drugs. The UN's Office on Drugs and Crime put the syndicate's turnover, and this was back in 2018, at between 8 and $18 billion a year. really extraordinary thing is that it wasn't until... Uh, a news agency, Reuters, published a report that the name of Tsai Lop uh, came out publicly. But now seems to be known at least to the authorities. I mean, how did they track him down? He's had the advantage of uh, reputedly being guarded by a squad of Thai kickboxers, which has obviously helped him to elude capture up until now. But he was arrested as the result of an investigation codenamed Operation Kungur, which involved 20 law enforcement agencies across the world, led by the Australian Federal Police. This, I should say, is not his first brush with the law. In 1998, in fact, he was convicted in New York of conspiracy to import heroin. Yet by 
2006, just eight years later, he was out of jail and according to law enforcement agents, uh, he was back to his old ways. It's made him a very wealthy man by all accounts. According to police, he once lost $66 million in a single night at the gambling tables in Macau. Though found guilty of these recent charges and... uh, I should stress that we've not heard his side of the story or heard from his lawyers. He is likely to remain locked up for a very long time and not be able to enjoy his gains. John, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. <laughs>